The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. Let's find our Bibles and go to Revelation chapter number 2. As we began uh, the last Sunday night of the, month of the year, 2020, and we read all the way through the seven letters from Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And I appreciate our men reading uh, those. If you are interested in that and missed it, you can go back, and that is on the website. But I appreciate being able to take that evening and really just focus on those seven letters just straight through. Now we're going to break them apart, and we're going to study them together because as we seek to allow Christ to build us as his church, we want to know what he has to say to us. Uh, there's a reason he put these letters in, in the book of Revelation. And there's a reason that he's placed them there. And he gave them to us to instruct us and to help us along, to encourage us as a church, not to go, you know, not to go into the same pitfalls they did and to, uh, to admire some of their strengths and to, uh, to reject some of their weaknesses. And it will certainly help us to study them together. So we're going to read them. Let's stand to our feet and uh, give respect to the word of God this morning and read this letter to the Ephesians Starting in Revelation chapter number 2 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, speaking to John, write these things. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I'll come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I want you to go back to chapter number 1 and verse number uh, 18, where it says this, Jesus says uh, to John, Fear not, I am the first and the last, verse number 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And we say, Amen. Amen. He is alive. And have the, the keys of hell and death. He has all authority. Verse 19, Write these things uh, which thou hast seen, and th uh, the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the, church, the seven churches, and the seven, golden, or the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven uh, churches. So I just want us to realize when he's talking about the star, he's talking about the ministers or the pastors, the angels of the churches. When he's talking about the candlesticks, he's talking about the churches. So keep that imagery as we go through on these letters to these churches. Let's pr pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather in this place and to pray together, to sing together, 
and to be encouraged together. Now, Lord, would you be our teacher this evening? You wrote this letter to a church like us, and we're asking that you would guide us by your Spirit into knowing what we need to apply into our lives, even this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you for standing. Uh, I asked you as we started reading this, this passage the last time we were together here, uh, can you imagine receiving a letter from Jesus Christ? You know, can you imagine receiving that and seeing on the return uh, Jesus Christ, uh, King of Heaven, or whatever would be on the return? Can you imagine receiving that? Yet churches in Asia Minor, Asia Minor uh, literally receive letters from the Lord Jesus Christ. Specific to them, specific to their situation, Jesus knows all about them, and he's writing to them because he has seen them. Now, let's refresh our memory about where these churches are. If you'll give me the map here this, uh, this evening, uh, just remember that, let's, uh, let's take the first map so we, we know exactly where this is. You see uh, Israel down there to your right, uh, down there at the, uh, at the east end of the Mediterranean Sea, and where these churches are is where that, ma- that marker is, it, and they're all kind of clustered right there. And there's seven churches that Jesus in particular, there's many other churches that he could have written to, but he chose to write to these seven churches of Asia Minor. In this next map, you see how they're, they're really uh, very, uh, they're, they're, they're spread out, but in, in close proximity to each other. And he starts off with this church of Ephesus. Now, it's easy to think about these, these cities, these churches, as being kind of distant and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of glorified in our minds, like they, they didn't have many problems, they didn't have much, uh, much problems in their city, and it was easy for them to get along in Christianity. No, uh, the, the reality is they are people just like us, with flesh just like us, with job schedules, children, uh, with interpersonal issues, with all sorts of things just like us. They're people just like us that Jesus is writing to. Now remember, when he's talking about the church, uh, as, as a whole, it's made up of individuals just like us. So when he's writing to these people and he's saying these things, he's talking to individuals just like you. And I can't underscore that enough because we cannot detach ourselves uh, from, uh, from the application of what Jesus is trying to give to us as, as individuals here in this passage of Scripture. Think about the Ephesian, uh, the city of Ephesus. It was the capital uh, of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Uh, so Rome had dominated this. They had taken over in about 133 B.C. In fact, they sent a bunch of Roman people down there to Ephesus uh, to colonize there so they could control their interests there. So they, they uh, basically uh, had an influx of Roman citizens that, that moved in there uh, to basically take over from the inside, uh, inside out. It was here that... Uh, Paul says that he taught for two years in Acts chapter 19, verse number 9. The Ephesian elders, when Paul was on his way back to, Ephes, uh, back to Jerusalem for the last time, they all gathered down at the dock, and they prayed with him, and they sent him off with tears. It was there that Paul said that he fought against beasts, so he faced persecution and problems in opposition in that, in that city. Uh, roads in that city, uh, from that city, spread out in every direction, um, from, from the coast to, uh, into every direction. So it was a major hub um, for that, that area. Uh, people think that there was probably, in this time, probably some 250,000 people in population in that city. So it wasn't a small city at, at all. It would be uh, Kettering uh, times, uh, times a little less than, you know, less than four. It was a, it was a, a significant city. 
and there were, there were multiple different ethnic groups there. Uh, religiously, it was known for uh, being the, the place where the, one of the seven wonders of the world uh, was at, and it was this, this temple to the, the, uh, the goddess Artemis. And uh, this temple is something else, uh, 450 feet in length, uh, 225 feet in width, uh, upheld by 120 uh, pillars. It was, it was a wonder, and it was known as such, but there was much pagan worship that happened in that city, uh, pagan worship that centered around all sorts of godless things that were going on in that city. So when you think about this, when you think about uh, the, the fact that Paul later on, uh, when he's speaking to Timothy, who would have pastored there, uh, when he said, listen, I want you to know that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth, I want you to realize everywhere you went in that city, they could see this magnificent structure full of pillars upholding this amazing roof structure. And everywhere you went in that city, you were reminded that this city was dominated by worship to this to this goddess, to this false goddess. And so understand that even as we go about the city of Kettering or Centerville or Dayton, uh, there's, there's no structure that everywhere you look, all the way around, you're, you're just constantly reminded of the fact, but they lived in the shadow of pagan worship and just realized they didn't have any structure like that. So when, when, when this church started, they they likely met in homes and likely met in small, small areas, but they, they could have easily become, you know, kind of depressed or, you know, despondent about what are we against such an, an immense and a huge uh, worship system to a false god? What are we? But God says, no, 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 no. I want you to remember that the church of the living God is the, the pillar and the ground of truth. It's what upholds truth in society. And if we can just be encouraged about something, do you realize that hasn't changed in our society right now? We still are the pillar and the ground of truth. And just remember, even as the heathen rage within our country, do you realize that it is the, the Christians, when they began to um, begin to target and say, you know, kind of push against, uh, against us and to, to even slander, do you know why they do that? Because they're afraid of what we stand for. The pillar and the ground of truth in society, and may we always continue to stand on the word of God and lift up God's truth in society. That's your goal this week, right? Lift up truth in your workplace. Lift up truth in your neighborhood. Lift up truth in the public square. Wherever you go, lift up the truth of God's word um, before a sinful, a sinful people. And so this is, this is Ephesus. Uh, not, not particularly an easy place to live out your Christianity. Uh, certainly not everyone was clapping, oh yeah, you're a Christian, great, we're all for you. No, 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 that wasn't the case. And you know, it's not the case in any generation that Christianity is the popular thing, but the fact of the matter is, it is still the way of truth. And here we have a church that has started and has been meeting for some time, and now Jesus is coming back to them and he's giving them a, a warning as well as a commendation. And I want us to hear this tonight. Let's consider this letter that Christ gives to his church. As we open up each letter, there's something that happens that's really, really neat. And so you need to, we're going to look for this in every single letter that we break apart. Jesus reveals himself in a particular way to each church. And I want you to notice in this letter, Jesus notes the fact of his presence. And notice how he starts out under the church of Ephesus right. These things saith he that holdeth 
the seven stars in his right hand and walketh in the midst. I want you to catch this. He, he wants this church to under, uh, understand, and I believe he wants us to understand his presence in his church. His presence in his church. He reveals himself specifically to Ephesus, the one who is so active and so, so going for the Lord. He, he just wants to remind him, listen, I am right in your midst. Though I'm going to encourage you and, and admonish you and even rebuke you, I'm right in your midst. I'm, I'm there. I'm with you. And he reveals himself in that way. I want you to think about it in this way. His passion for them. Notice how he says he holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Quick quiz. What are the seven stars? The pastors, the, the ministers, the angels of the, uh, of the church, okay? So it doesn't mean that he does not hold us in his hands. In fact, another quick quiz, where in the Bible does it tell us that Jesus holds you in his hands? John 10. And can any man pluck you out of his hand? Yes or no? No. Isn't that a great truth? So the fact is, here he is just trying to help the church understand, I, I hold the pastors in, in my right hand. And I want us to think about this. Uh, when someone says, I'm going to get a handle on this, what are they saying? They're going to deal with it. They're going to take care of all the details. They're going to they're superintend that process. I'm going to get a handle on that. And in a sense, I want us to realize that Jesus personally says, I handle the pastors of these churches. And Ephesus, I handle your pastor. I have him in my hand. I personally care for him. I personally protect him. I personally empower him. That's a, that's a really powerful statement. I remember as we were going into COVID and I called a pastor out of state for a little bit of advice and so, uh, so forth. He says, Josiah, I want you to remember, Jesus is the one who says he holds you in his hand. Boy, that was an encouragement. That was an encouragement. And I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by the fact that he holds us all in his hand. But he said specifically, he holds the seven stars in his hands. The Lord, as one man said, has the seven stars, but he has them as one holding them, using them in his might and his almightiness, even as they are in his right hand, which signifies his majesty and omnipotence. What a God we serve. You know, God is so interested in what is happening here. He says, I, I have the one who I've called to teach and preach the word and to lead the flock. I have him right in my hand. I'm not, I didn't say, just go down there and do your thing. Do it on your own. No, Jesus is right there gripping the pastor. One of the ways that you can pray for me as a pastor is pray that I'll always be sensitive to the leadership of the Lord and that I won't stray from him. And, and you can pray that for other pastors. You can pray that for Pastor Pete. You can pray that for the other pastors throughout our city. You can pray that for Pastor Josh Levesque. Lord, help him to respond. You know, and, and just think about this. As, as Jesus points the way and he guides the way, just think about what he's trying to do. I, he's the one that moves us around. He's the one that moves the heart. He's the one that gives the leading. And this is what he says. And so he also said in Ephesians 4, which we'll be memorizing, verse number 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Jesus is so keenly interested in what is happening in our church family. He says, I have the pastor right in my hand. I've given him to you. He is right there. He is, uh, he is in my hand. I have a handle on this. I want us to get a picture of that. I have a handle on this. What an amazing God we serve. 
And so can we not just thank Jesus for being that type of uh, superintendent of the church? And as Baptists, we believe that he is the sole authority. He's, he's over us. There's no, there's no ruling. Uh, there's no, I, I'm not the head of the church. He's the head of the church. Aren't you thankful for that? You should say a resounding amen. I'm not the head of the church. He is. Amen? Praise the Lord. And uh, I, I would make a mess of things. And so uh, a prayer that you can legitimately pray as we have asked, we're trusting Jesus to build his church is, Lord, would you help our pastor to always be sensitive to him and not go his own way? But notice what he says here as he continues in verses 2 and, two and 3, his proximity to them, his proximity to them. He's not distant because he says, yeah, I have the, the pastors in my hand, but I want you to notice uh, he says, uh, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's right there walking among them. He's not distant. He is right here. Now consider that tonight. Consider the fact that Jesus walks among us. And we say, oh yeah, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst. And we, we almost say that like, well, yeah, okay. But Jesus has told the church here, I am walking among you. How would your Christianity and my Christianity differ this week if we, if we considered the fact that Jesus is walking among us? What would our responses be? What would our priorities be? What would our, uh, what would our heart be if we, if we truly realize that Jesus is walking around? Let me ask you this way. When the boss comes onto the floor, how does that change the way that you go about what you're doing? When you realize that you're, you, you, as you work on, uh, on, online and, and you realize that you're being watched or they, it, it shows that the, the bosses begin to check in on your work on your computer screen, how does that change your, your thinking? There's this old, uh, this old statement that is, uh, I guess, used in management and leadership. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a phrase that goes like this, managed by walking around. How many of you have ever heard that? Managed by walking around. I've heard that a time or two. Why? Why do, why do good managers walk around? Uh, I was over at, uh, at Christopher's today, and uh, most of you, if you've met Dave over here, he's a good example of, of walking around. He's constantly on top of it. He makes sure it's taken care of. I was in there the other day, uh, and, and uh, he saw a, uh, some food that might have been getting cold. He's like, that needs to be taken care of. We need to heat that up. And he's, he's always walking around. It's a good example of managing by walking around. Why? They get to know their employees better, right? Uh, they get to see how the process is working. A uh, manager o- observes the, 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 the maintenance of the machinery, the maintenance of what is going on in his building, how safe the working conditions are. Uh, they find those that are rising in leadership. They're rising in their abilities. Uh, they identify training needs. They uh, just, in their very walking around, uh, make themselves visible, which increases and encourages uh, productivity, right? Uh, and so one of the things I, I wonder how, how productivity really is as people are working from home. You know how that goes? I mean, there's a, and, and so they're having to figure out how do, we, how do we walk around? How do we keep a handle on all of this? But Jesus says he's walking around Grace Baptist Church. And he was walking around the church of Ephesus and the churches. He's the one who said, I am 
I'm walking in the midst. Oh, that we would have a holy realization that Jesus Christ walks through our midst, that he is here. He is seeing what's going on. And whether we're gathered together or apart, he is seeing what is going on in his church and among his church and how that would affect every class, how that affects every conversation, how that affects every mind, how that affects every voice lifted up in worship to him. It affects, why? Because he's walking around. And in reality, this is both a comfort and a challenge, isn't it? Because if I'm, if I'm walking contrary to what he wants me to do, walking contrary to his word, it's a challenge. Like, ooh, he sees me. If I'm walking according to his word, what a comfort it is to have him walking about. And I wonder even tonight, does the thought of Jesus seeing everything you do, does it bring challenge or does it bring comfort? And it might indicate where you, what you need to do even in this week in your relationship with the Lord. So his presence in the church, he's holding the seven stars. He's walking in the midst of his church. But notice the perception of his church in verses 2 through 4. The perception of the church. And, and here's something I want us to really grab a hold of. How Jesus perceives us is really what is most important. Not how the world does. We're going to have to die to the world. The world is never going to love, uh, love the followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, they, we should have a good testimony before them. The Bible tells us that, right? But we should not be concerned with how they perceive us as, oh, oh well, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, great, they're great people in the sense of you know, we, we agree with everything they're doing. They're going to have a, a different perception of us. What really matters is how Jesus Christ perceives Grace Baptist Church and how he perceives you. And so notice what he says here in verse number two. I know thy works. I know thy works. I want us to think about this. Jesus perceived in them an active church. An active church. I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience. If you go on to verse number three, and uh, how thou born and hast patience, and, and for my namesake hast labored and not fainted. I know this about you. I perceive this about you. I see this in your life. The idea of knowing is to understand and to know experientially. And so he says, I, I perceive, I can see into what you're doing, and I know all that you're doing. Notice what he sees about them. Notice that he sees their service for him. In verse uh, 2, he says, I, I know your works. I know your acts and your deeds. Have you considered today that Jesus knows everything that you've done for him in this place? Have you considered the fact that he knows what you've done this week that no one else knows about, but your acts of service towards him? Uh, your call of encouragement this week? Your email towards a missionary this week? Your, your calling another church member, dropping a meal off? All that, he knows it. Isn't that an amazing thought? He knows it. He, he perceives that. He knows their labor, their productive work. That's the idea of that word, their productive work. He knows their effectiveness. He knows their heart to do it right and to do it well. He knows their patience. He knows their endurance that they have done this for year after year after year. And you know he knows the same about your life. He knows that you've served the Lord and he knows how long you've served him and you know he knows exactly uh, what you've endured and what you've had to bear up under. Likely, this church was planted in 53 AD, which means about the time of this writing, 95 AD, this church is probably some 42 years of age. And Jesus says, I know how that you've worked for over four decades. I know how you have served me. 
I see it all. I perceive it. I see your service to me. And greater, he says in verse number three, he says, I see that you've even done it for my namesake. I see that you haven't done it to um, prop yourself up or to give yourself a name, but you've actually done this for, for my namesake. And, and I see this in you. But he also saw not just their service, but their stand for him. Their stand for him. Because he says in the middle of verse number two, and how thou cannot, canst not bear them which are evil. He says, I, I see that, that when it comes to right and wrong and, 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 and separation and, and who you align with, I see that you've made some good choices. I see that you've, you've drawn some lines in the sand and that you've not crossed over them. I see that you want to be loyal to me and my truth, and I see that. Well, let's break this down a little bit. This word evil has the idea not of just uh, the idea of, of morally reprehensible, uh, but it, it, it's the idea of um, bad ones. Or if you go over to Luke chapter number 16, it's the idea of a wasteful steward or a neglectful steward. That's the idea of this. Um, it's the idea of someone who has been given a gift and buries it. It's the idea of someone who has been given eternal life but really does not engage in walking in that, that life that Jesus Christ has given. Colossians 2 and verse number 6 tells us, As ye therefore have received Christ, so walk ye in him, right? Rooted and grounded. So he says, listen, I, I, I see that with those in your, in your membership, in your, in your body, you, you have not been able to, to bear up or just be okay with those that said, you know what, I'm, I'm not that important, I'm just going to bury my gift. I'm not going to really dive in and serve the Lord. In other words, to this very active church, they struggled with those that were mediocre in their Christianity. Um, this, this can cause a rub in, in, in churches, and sometimes where, where someone who isn't uh, making a decision to follow Christ with their whole heart, uh, it, it, if we don't have the right attitude there, it, it can cause some problems. We can kind of push people away and, and not love on them and love them back to Christ and, and so forth. But the idea here is that they really struggled with those that didn't just dive in and, and serve the Lord and use, and use uh, what God had given them for his glory. And so... Uh, they, they did not coddle mediocre Christianity. That's what we need to grab a hold of here. They did not coddle mediocre Christianity. They held each other to account. By the way, that's something that we are supposed to do in our gathering together, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another uh, and provoking one another unto love and good works as we see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. So the idea is this church, they, they were a happening church. Come on, let's, let's get this done. Come on, stop, stop relaxing. Stop just you know, sitting back in your Christianity. Let's go forward for the Lord was the idea. They did not, they had a problem with those that were mediocre in their Christianity. They wanted to push them forward. And Jesus says, I, I see that you don't, you don't do well with that. But it wasn't just that. He saw that they did not compor compromise with apostates. Um, it says there were some that came and they would say, hey, we're an apostle. We are sent ones from the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to bring a message to you. And so the Bible says that they tried them and they found them to be liars. So they were using some spiritual discernment here. 
They were taking the truth of Scripture that they had, and they were using some spirit uh, discernment. They tested them. First John 4 and verse number 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And so he says, hey, uh, you guys didn't just go all over YouTube and say, hey, there's, a, uh, there's another one. He says he's uh, coming in the name of the Lord. He says he has a prophecy. He says he has something. And, well, he's saying it. It must be true. No, they tried them according to the word of God. They didn't compromise on the word of God. They let the word of God be the ultimate standard. Listen, we, have, we live in a world that is clamoring. We live in a world full of itchy ears, don't we? They're clamoring for more. But friends, we have, we have the, the litmus test. We have everything that we need to figure out whether a person is for Christ or against Christ whether we should follow them or whether we should not. And the church of Ephesus was very careful in how they interacted with those. In fact, they followed what the Bible told, uh, tells us in 2 John chapter number, uh, verse number 10. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. So the idea was don't fellowship, don't condone those that have gone off into apostasy. And so he, he's saying, listen, I see, I see in you that you refuse to connect with and to partner with apostasy within the church. And so Jesus understands all of our activity for him. Whether it's our service or whether it's our stand for him, he sees it all. Does that not sober you tonight just to think that Jesus sees everything that we're doing? And uh, may, may God help us in this year, if there's something that we're doing that does not please him, may God alert us as a body and change our thinking about that. Do you not agree on that? May God help us in that area. And uh, we're not above being in, the, in the, the wrong direction or you know, doing the wrong thing. We, we need to realize the, the accountability that comes with the fact that Jesus sees everything that we do. But here's something. He saw all their activity, and he didn't, he didn't disparage it. He didn't say, guys, you're working too hard. He didn't, he didn't disparage it. This is a commendation. But notice how he goes into verse number 4, and he gives them this, this, this other part of his perception he perceives you're active you're really working hard you're doing a lot and you're doing it for my name great but he says nevertheless i have somewhat against thee and we want to we want to oftentimes land very hard on this part but you realize he he gave some really great commendations to this church you know that in any church there can be some really good points about it and there can be an off point and we need to be willing to receive that and change it. So notice what he says. He perceived an affectionless church. Ugh. That's hard. Because he says there, because thou hast left thy first love. So you're busy, busy, busy. You're serving me and serving me, but you're doing it without affection. You're doing it without love to me. In fact, the word left here has the idea that they, they had abandoned it or... Perhaps a better way of, of understanding it would be they stopped maintaining their love relationship with Jesus Christ. Now think about that in our marriages. What happens when you stop maintaining your love relationship with your spouse? What happens? Falls apart. We don't want to answer this one. 
remember Jesus Christ is us in the church. Jesus and his church is a picture of our marriages. Okay. <laughs> I've heard other people tell me it causes bitterness. An anonymous friend, right? Um, it, it fizzles quickly. Uh, if we don't tend to the, to the fire of love within our, within our marriages, it fizzles. And what does the world do? We, felt we just stop loving each other. We don't love each other anymore. But there's a point where it stopped being maintained. That's hugely convicting to me. Because I, don't, I, I do not imagine in the church of Ephesus that there was the idea, okay, we're done loving you, but we'll keep serving you. No. They, they continue to go through the practice of it, the routine of it, but without the love, without maintaining the love relationship, they were doing the things that they ought to do for the Lord without the love that should be driving these things that they do for the Lord. And so there was a definite departure that Jesus, the head of the church, the one who was walking in the midst, the one who heard the conversations in the lobby, the one who saw how we, how we interacted with one another and how we prayed and how we sang and, and how we gave, he's the one who's walking in the midst, seeing all these things, and he says, listen, I just don't sense you love me like you used to you imagine a wife saying to a husband I, I just don't feel your love like it used to be I feel like it's routine that's, that's the picture Jesus is saying I, I, I have somewhat against thee it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to say to you uh, you've lost your first love this is a picture of, of marital love uh, it's enthusiastic. Isn't, isn't a new marriage and the love that's shared between, isn't it enthusiastic? I just can't wait to get home from work, right? You know, and, and there's just this desire to be together. And it's, it's a special thing. And, and Jesus says, you've lost that enthusiastic love. You've lost that sacrificial devotion that you used to have to me. And do you know the fact is two people can exist in the same home? doing the things that married people do and not have first love towards each other? That's a pretty amazing thing. But Jesus said, this is what's happened between me and my church at Ephesus. We do the things, we, we look married, we look like a couple, we, we look like we're serving one another, but it's, it, there's, not, there's not love. There's not that first love. There's not that, that, that just that devoted, uh, that devoted uh, sacrificial love that you used to have towards me that, 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 that sprung from your heart. And yes, I'll serve you because I love you. I'll serve you because it's the right thing to do. I, I'll serve you because I always have. I, I'll serve you because if I stop serving you, someone would notice. I'll, I'll serve you because, well, I, I, I can't stop. Not because I love you. Now, I want us to go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 15 for a moment. Why don't you turn there? You don't have notes in front of you. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 15, because 35 years previous, when, when Ephesus was still a baby church, baby might be the wrong word, young church, Paul writes to them at Ephesus, and he says something to them in verse number 15, wherefore, Ephesians 1 and verse number 15, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and notice what he heard about them, and love unto all the saints. 
Say that with me. And love unto all the saints. Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. What did Paul see in them? He saw their love toward one another. Do you realize that you and I don't love one another when we don't love him? One of the markers of being in love with the Lord Jesus Christ is when we're in love with one another. When we sacrifice and when we're enthusiastic to be together and when we love one another, it's a grand marker. And when we abandon our love towards him, we also will soon abandon our love toward one another. Schisms get in that way. Fighting and divisiveness and, and picking at one another and biting and devouring, like Galatians says, gets into the mix when we don't love him. And so at some point along the line, they had lost their enthusiastic love toward him. Whereas in this point, in the early years of their existence, Paul says, it's your testimony that you love one another and obviously you love him. They were still sound in their doctrine. They were active in their service. But the true motive of all worship and service was missing. Think about that. Why do you do what you do for Jesus? Why do you teach? Why do you serve in the nursery? Why do you clean? Why do you soul win? Why do you sing? Why do you serve as a deacon? Why do you mow? Why do you take a meal to somebody? Why do you prepare? Why? Why do you decorate? Why do you do these things for Jesus? And if the answer is anything other than love, then there needs to be a a getting back with him and saying, Lord, I'm sorry for serving you with the wrong motive. I'm sorry for not serving you from a heart of love. Listen, if you stay content serving Jesus just out of rote, it will not be long. It will not be long till you are in the exact place the Ephesian church was where it, he's coming to you. Hey, I see a real active believer in you, but I don't sense love. I don't know about you, but I, 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 that would be like the worst thing that I could hear from my spouse. I mean, the most convicting thing I could hear from my spouse. And honestly, that's a four-alarm fire. If my spouse does not feel the love, oh, but you're doing this, 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 and this, but I don't feel the love. I don't sense that there's love. Hold everything. It's It's time to really get back to work. It's time to do something different. It's time to change direction here. And, uh, I, I don't see Jesus here just slapping the Ephesian church. I see him coming from a, a heart of, well, wouldn't it be a heart of hurt if you, if you felt that way towards your spouse? And wouldn't it be from a, from a heart longing for them to come back in love and rebuild that relationship? So Jesus does not just desire your service, friends. He doesn't just desire what you do for him. He wants your love. He wants our love. And so we should all ask ourselves the question, am I serving Jesus today out of love? Am I, hey guys, am I serving my family out of love? Am I serving my spouse out of love, which, by the way, is an act of service towards Christ? Moms, am I serving my family out of love for Jesus Christ? Is that what's motivating it? Or is it just because it's the right thing to do? 
It's just because I have to do it or other would, others would think poorly of me. Oh, that we would get back to doing everything we do for the Lord Jesus Christ because we love him. Because we love him. And I don't know about you, but that, 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 is a, that needs to be high on the priority list of, of prayer. Lord, help me to grow my love. Help, it not, help me not to stop maintaining my love towards you. And when I do, Lord, please send a letter through the Holy Spirit to me. And, and you know, through your word, you understand. Uh, not getting literal letters here, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh, let me know. Please convince me. Convict me about that. But notice what he does. He very quickly gets on. I don't know about you. You see here, he, he does not spend much time on the rebuke. He does spend a lot of time encouraging them to go on. And so we get to verse number five, and he says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Hey, uh, church, I want you to remember. I, I'm with you. I'm present there. I, I perceive some things. You're active, but uh, you're affectionless. You, I, I want you to come back in your love toward me. And here's the path out of this. Here's the path forward. There's always a way back to passionate love for Jesus Christ. Jesus does not leave us like, he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke us and say, oh, figure it out, get back to me however you plan, uh, please. No, he gives us a way back, and here's how he says, return to me, come back to me. I want you to remember uh, where you were when you stepped away in your affection towards me. I want you to remember back to the, the first days and the first works that we had together. I want you to come back, and he uses this word, repent. It says, change your mind. What is repenting? When we talk about a person repenting of their, of their sin, what are we talking about? We're saying, hey, you are a sinner on your way to hell. Your sin is going to condemn you to eternal fire in hell. We want, and, and, and your own way of trying to be good enough for God, all that is going to uh, leave you in a place called hell someday if you do not turn, change your mind and, and turn to Jesus Christ. Repenting is the idea of changing my mind and that change of mind results in a change of action and direction. Now, there are some people that look at this word and it's a turning over a new leaf. That's not what Jesus is asking for here. He's saying, listen, I want you to stop going this way. Stop just serving me because it's the right thing to do and because you've always done it for the past 42 years and stop just doing it out of row. And I want you to change your mind and realize, hey, I've stopped uh, uh, showing affection towards my Savior and I want you to change gears. I want you to turn direction. I want you to go a different way. And so a change of mind here is, is, is required. In fact, all change in our lives requires a change of mind. You with me on that? So if a New Year's resolution is going to be successful, it's not going to happen without a change of mind. Right? Some people just say, well, I've got to do a New Year's resolution. I've got to figure out something I'm going to do different. And they never, they never change their mind. And, and it doesn't last very long. All change requires a change of mind. A, a, I can't do it this way anymore. I must go this way. And so he's saying, listen, there's, there has to be a, a, a pausing and a realization that I'm not going the right way. I can't keep on this journey. Let me ask you a question. If you continue on your present spiritual journey, same thing, same, going about it the same way, same attitude, same heart, where will you be in five years from now? Will you be closer and more in love with Jesus? Will you be burnt out and frazzled? Where will you be in five years from now? He says, I want you to repent. I want you to go a different direction. Don't stay where you are. 
realize there's a, there's a problem. I'm not just mentioning this because, well, I've got to fill up some words on, 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 uh, on the pages here for you. Uh, no, he's mentioning this because this is a legitimate need and a real issue. Don't be paralyzed by, oh, I failed. And some people get that way. When, when they get rebuked, they uh, get paralyzed. Have you met a person like that? Have you ever been a person like that? You, you get rebuked and like, oh, I'm the worst Christian in the whole world and I can't do anything right and I, 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 I'm just a, just a horrible, horrible person and they just stay in that, that they melt down and they stay in that position, right? Don't, don't, don't get paralyzed by the rebuke. It's time to, to say, okay, I see where I've, I've come away from loving you as I ought to. And it's time to move forward and, and to love. Return from the failure. Return to the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know what he says here? If you don't, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to remove your candle from the candlestick. And you know what? That an affectionless church will soon die out. You cannot sustain. You cannot sustain the life of a church without affection towards Jesus Christ. Friends, that is a sobering thing because even, even now, it's what binds us together is, is, not, is, not, uh, is not what's going on in the world around us. Uh, the ease of being Christians in America, it has to be our love for Jesus Christ. And without that, we will die out. And Jesus isn't, isn't making a, a vicious threat against them. He's just saying, listen, you can't, you can't go on in your Christianity without loving me. It's not going to work. And so if there is not this affection, this vibrant affection that's producing your uh, service to the Lord, you've got to stop and say, listen, I've I got to go to a different direction. I've got to rekindle the flame. I've got to maintain that. And so he says, I want you to return to me. I want you to come back to me in love. And this return was accompanied with another commendation. Notice what he says in verse number 6. Thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This you have. This you do really well. You do a good job at this. And what were these Nicolaitans? Uh, some people say it's, it's hard to ascertain it uh, completely. But some people say that it was a sect of, 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 of Christian teaching that uh, came up through uh, Nicholas the proselyte of Antioch, um, one of the seven deacons in Acts 6, uh, who apostatized from the truth. And uh, they, they, it is said or recorded that uh, he began to teach an antinomian or a lawlessness um, to, to believers and really a, uh, a teaching that, that encouraged them to engage in worldly practice and just enjoy that without, you know, without, without reservation. And as one author said, they, they appear to have been characterized by sensuality, seducing Christians to participate in idolatrous feasts of pagans and unchastity. Uh, so the idea was, really what I want to lock in on, on is this, this antinomian or this lawlessness. And if you were to equate it over in our day, it would be the, the teaching that, that, uh, that says, you're saved by grace, so live as you please. Live as you please. Go enjoy what's here in the world. And uh, the idea of going in and joining in their feasts is go enjoy what the world enjoys. You're saved. Who cares? You're saved. Nothing can take that away. You know, I, as I give the gospel to a lot of people, they often immediately go to that. When we talk about the freeness of grace, they often go to that. Well, does that mean I, we can live as we please? No, no, no. The Bible says in Romans 6, number, uh, number 1, it says, shall, uh, shall we sin that grace may abound? What does the Bible say? 
God forbid. So grace is free, and it's an amazing thing, but God says, don't use my grace as a license to sin. Don't, don't think that, this, uh, that, that lawlessness is, the, uh, is what pleases God. Just because you're under grace does not mean you can do as you, as you please. In fact, grace is what enables you to do what pleases God. Aren't you thankful for that? So he says, I, I see in your lives that you reject this teaching. And good. Good. Remain pure. Don't, don't slip off into that. In fact, as he says that, I'm just reminded of the fact that my purity, my, my spiritual purity before God does not hinder my love. It, it, it promotes my love. And it's when I allow impurity to get into my, into my life, it's then that my, it just it leaks my love right out of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in our world today, people, ah, oh, you know, you can't have standards, you can't have convictions, and, you know, it just kind of pushes back on a lot of those things. No, it is these things that help me to love the Lord Jesus Christ, these personal decisions that I, I carry. And so he says, listen, I am thankful that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But notice what he says lastly in this final verse, verse number seven, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, what the Spirit saith to the churches. How does the Spirit talk to us? Uh, he impresses upon our heart, but you know what he does? He takes the word of God as we read it, and he says, that's for you. The Holy Spirit is given to us as the guide into all truth, right? So he takes the things of Jesus Christ given to us in his word, and he guides us into the truth and the practicing of them. And so he says, hey, as you hear this letter from me, my word, I want you to hear the Spirit of the Lord saying, this is for you. You, who are very active have lost your affection and i want you back i want you back he says he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches when did you get your spiritual ears can you think of a, a time where in the bible tells us when we got our, our our ears to be able to hear the spirit of god when we got saved, yes. Where in the Bible does it talk to us about that? Does anyone remember? Quizzes tonight. All right. Write this down. The Bible says in uh, Romans 8 and verse number 9, I'm going to give you two verses, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And then 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 14. The, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So the moment that you got saved is the moment that you could begin hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, this is, this is my truth. This is the way, walk in it. I was talking to somebody this week, and they said, I don't understand. It's so much work to read the Bible. Well, one of my big questions to them is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because without that relationship with Christ, the Bible's not going to make sense. Because you don't have the Spirit of God speaking to you. But here he's talking to believers and saying, listen, when the Spirit of God speaks to you, listen to him. Listen to him. What's the Spirit of God saying to you tonight? He's saying, yeah, you've been serving out of rote. I want you to come back and maintain your love to me. I want you to rekindle. It's time to rekindle some love. I feel like we've, our relationship's gotten to be affectionless. 
It's not what it once was. There's not that same devotion. There's not that same fire between, uh, between us. Uh, it, it, it's not the same. And so he says, listen, I, I, I want you to, uh, you that have an ear, I want you to listen to what the Spirit has to say. And by the way, this is the only way the church is going to stay, stay on the right path. If those of us, which the church is made up of saved and baptized believers, right? If those of us as believers are listening to the Holy Spirit of God, we'll stay on the right track. And he's saying, listen, this is the way to stay on the right track and to overcome in this life if you're listening to the Holy Spirit of God. Respond to him. Respond to the Holy Spirit in your life. And I urge you tonight, respond to the Holy Spirit. Whatever he's telling you to do, respond to him. Um, we as believers have an ear. It does not mean that we always listen. I uh, came across this comic this week that, Brother Tom, you sent it to me. Get, uh, can you give that to me, guys? This is a great comic. This is a really great comic. But it, 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 it so captures what is going on in our lives oftentimes. Study that for a second. How in the world can we hear the Spirit of God in this crazy world in which we live unless we, we actively, uh, actively in, a, in a very resolved manner choose to listen into God's word and to him uh, as he presses it on our heart. We get so busy. Maybe, maybe you don't even realize that you've lost the affection with the Lord because you haven't taken time to hear the Spirit of God. Perhaps what you need to do is get some time to be still and know that he's still God and to hear his voice talking to you. Maybe you read through this and it doesn't even, even touch your heart. As I was preparing, there were several times where it just, it, this, is, this, is, this is majorly convicting stuff. Because when this, the head of the church is telling me, hey, I feel like we've lost that first love, that's something I need to check out. And I need to listen to the Holy Spirit of God. When we respond to the Holy Spirit, look at verse number 7. He says, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know what he says to us? He says, when you overcome, when you do the right thing, when you make the right choice, when you have victory in this area, you know what's going to happen? You are going to be able to eat of eternal satisfaction. Uh, something that satisfies beyond anything else the world can satisfy. A, a marriage that is full of love, towards one another is going to satisfy beyond anything that the world can allure it with. And Jesus says, listen, if, if you know and you're listening to the Holy Spirit of God, which says, hey, focus on loving me and, and serve because you love me and, 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 and come back to me in that way, I will give you satisfaction in such an amazing way. I'll give you nourishment, the, the nourishment of the tree of life. I'll give you a satisfaction in the paradise of God, which is exactly what the idea of paradise oftentimes is, is just the pleasure, the, the, the blessing of God. In fact, what does the Bible say in Psalm 16, verse number 11? Thou will show Show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. Right? He says, come back to me. And when you come back to me, you're going to know nourishment, and you're going to know satisfaction that the world cannot uh, uh, give you. And no amount of programs, no amount of, of, of activity for the Lord can give you unless you're finding it in love towards me. So Ephesus really is a reminder to us tonight uh, that what Jesus wants from you, most of all, is you. 
He wants you. And it doesn't matter how old you are here tonight. You can be a child, a teenager, a senior saint, middle age. He wants you. He wants you. And does he have you? Does he have your heart? He wants your love. He wants you to be close to him. Can we remember back in the book of Luke in chapter number 10 when uh, Mary and Martha were together? That, that very common story. Really, in a lot of ways, that, that, that is a, a microcosm, an individual level of how Jesus talked to this whole church. Because Martha was busy serving Jesus. She's making food for Jesus. And the guest, she was busy. She was doing the right thing. Nothing was wrong with creating the food. She was doing the right thing. But she had lost she had lost the motivation, the loving motivation to do this for Jesus. To her, this was just a task list. By the way, we can come to church and just be a task list. We can be present in this building and just be a, a task list. I, I just got to get this done for Jesus. I, I, have to, I have to do this because it has to be done. And she was doing that. And Jesus said, listen, as she came and was all bothered, by the way, it was Martha that was all bothered. There were others enjoying Jesus in that room, but she was the one all bothered. And likely, in, in our case, we're going to be the ones that are all bothered when we aren't loving Jesus like we ought to be. We're going to be the ones raising the ruckus and, and causing the disturbance among, um, among his flock when we aren't in love with him like we ought to be. Well, what are they doing? What are they doing? And why isn't she doing this like she ought to do? And why didn't she do it this way? And, and you know what? It, it comes back to my love relationship with him. And so where's Mary? She's sitting at the feet, taking in and soaking up every word. Right? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're, you're cumbered about. You're bothered with all this service. He didn't say, Martha, stop doing this. This is the wrong, you shouldn't be doing this. You're doing the wrong thing. No, he says, you're, you're cumbered about. You're burdened down with all this. Mary has chosen the, the, the one needful thing, and the, that thing will not be taken away from her. Wow. So it's not to disregard service. He, he wasn't saying that to, Mary, uh, to Martha. He was saying Mary's chosen to, to enjoy me, to enjoy my presence, to enjoy my word, to enjoy my um, being with me, and that's not going to be taken away from her. And friends, tonight, if you'll take time to be near Jesus and at his feet, and I say this to myself as well, that's the one thing that won't be taken away from us. The world can rage on and there can be problems raging on in your life, in your workplace. But that, when I'm in love with Jesus and I'm enjoying him, it can't be taken away from me. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so, what, is, what does Jesus want you to do tonight? How does he want you to respond to his word tonight? So to come back and say, Lord, I, I'm sorry, I have gotten into rote. I do the Christian life thing. I read my Bible. I go to church. I spend time with my family, I do this, I do that. What does Jesus want from you tonight? I want to give you one last quote as we cl on close. A.W. Tozer said, the, the nearer our souls draw to God, the larger our love will grow. The larger our love will grow. The greater our love, the more unselfish we become, and the greater our care for souls of others. And sometimes they're like, we got to win souls. You know what we really need to do? We need to love Jesus. You know, when we love Jesus, it changes everything about how we go about our week. When we love Jesus, it's not hard to talk to others about him because we love him. 
When we love Jesus, it's not hard to serve others because we love Jesus and we love others who love Jesus. And so could I just encourage you, let's come back to Jesus tonight. And I don't know how far back he might need to come, but I think we all probably could grow in our love towards him. Don't you agree with that? So let's ask him to help us with that tonight. Would you bow with me in prayer? Let's spend a few moments in prayer uh, just talking to our Savior. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.